I have always loved books. My first school award was for reading 10,000 pages over the course of the challenge. This was first or second grade. And part of the credit or blame goes to my mom, because she loved reading with us. We read Narnia and My Father's Dragon and George MacDonald and Tuck Everlasting. And I still remember how she got mad at me when she discovered I had gotten so into our reading of The Hobbit that I was cheating and reading ahead at school. My love for books continued through high school English classes and into college, where I remember feeling somewhat daring reading Harry Potter on the treadmill at my conservative Christian college, right? Because Harry Potter was like, oh, okay, maybe it still is, I don't know. As a senior, I was invited to speak to my fellow English majors at graduation, near graduation, and I shared with them about the books that had been my conversation partners and my time there, the books that had changed me, the books that spoke to what I was questioning Uh, and experiencing, and all the things that I was processing. Now, I know some of this resonates with some of you, and for some of you, that sounds crazy. Books? What? You might have other go-tos that you turn to when you're searching. Maybe music, or art, or people. Maybe sports? That's not me. I don't know. I love that we turn to different things, and I love when you share that with me. But for me, it's still books. In fact, one of the things that I love about the Bible is how it's a book that always speaks so powerfully to my deep and visceral questions, the things I'm desperate to understand, that it becomes more alive the more we study it. And in different stages of our lives, passages that have been so familiar, we've just kind of passed them by, suddenly burst off the page in 3D neon lights. And today's passage from John 15, I think, is one of those passages, at least for me, because it speaks directly to one of the most gut-level questions that I'm asking and that I hear many people asking right now, which is, to put it bluntly, how do I love people when I think they're so wrong? How do I love my family and friends who are on the other side from me and how they view the election or the vaccine or Black Lives Matter or immigration or take your pick, whatever makes our blood pressure rise when you hear the word? How do we love each other as we begin to reemerge from our long winter of isolation and come face-to-face with people who've changed as people who've changed? Jesus' command is very clear. Love one another. But how do we actually do that? How do we learn to love even people with whom we strongly disagree? John 15 gives us some guidance in learning to love. We learn to love by dwelling, doing, and asking. Or if you need some alliteration, abiding, acting, and asking. First, we learn to love one another by dwelling in Jesus' love. That word abiding or remaining, depending on your translation. In other words, we learn how to love when we make Jesus our teacher. We don't have to go off and figure it out on our own. Instead, in this passage, we hear Jesus saying to us, I'm right here. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy because I love you. You've seen how I've lived in the Father's love. You've experienced how I love you. Now just remain in my love. Or as the message puts it, make yourself at home in my love. Jesus' love is not far off from us. It is always near. Jesus himself is always near, eager to be our teacher. Right now, in the way that we do bedtime 
in my household. I'm the one who reads with the girls before bedtime. Books again. Well, with a five-year-old and a two-year-old, reading time often means bouncing off the walls while mom tries to read time. <laughs> and for Ruthie especially, bedtime is crazy time. I, right now, I'm shutting the three of us in the room so that no one can escape and start running down the hallway going, ah! You know, Ruthie's grabbing the laundry hamper and putting it over her head or crawling into it and asking me to drag her around in it. She's climbing into Junie's crib and jumping up and down and doing these like WWF moves off the side of the crib into the mattress, interrupting the story because, mommy, I want to tell you something, anything, but letting her body and her mind settle down into a space in which she can read. And all the while, I'm sitting there in bed with a spot right next to me that's exactly the size of her body and an open arm that would fit around her just right. That's how I imagine Jesus, too. He's right there with us, ready to embrace us, ready to be with us, just waiting for us to settle down a bit and join him. And unlike me at bedtime, Jesus doesn't get frustrated or impatient with us. His arms are not closed in condemnation. They are open in invitation. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, abide in me, dwell in my love, and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble, and you will find the deep rest that you crave. Then my joy will be in you, and your joy will overflow. We learn to love by letting Jesus teach us. He teaches us in his words, but he also teaches us how to love by simply loving us. If we're not familiar with the as I have loved you part of verse 12, we're going to have a hard time practicing the love each other part. So as we here seek to practice the dwelling part of learning to love, perhaps the starting point is prayer. Even a simple prayer, like a breath prayer, like this. Jesus, teach me. I receive your love. Jesus, teach me. I receive your love. Amen. We learn to love one another by dwelling in the love of Jesus. We also learn to love by doing. Because Jesus' command is just that, a command. Love one another. Practice it. Work it out. We learn to love one another through actual relationships with real people. Again, Jesus tells his disciples and us, learn from my example. He tells his disciples, you're not my servants or slaves, you're my friends. Now, in that culture, friendship was a really big deal, and it was taken much more seriously than we often take it, right? Facebook friends can mean all sorts of things. Uh, friendships in Jesus' time were marked by a few things, deep loyalty even as Jesus puts it, loyalty to the point of being willing to die for one another, deep sharing, mutual sharing of possessions, what's mine is yours, and also mutual sharing of the heart, being able to be honest versus flattering, and confiding everything under the sun. So that's one of the things Jesus highlights to his disciples. You're not my slaves just doing the stuff I tell you to do. You're my friends. I've shared my heart with you and all my doings and the inner workings of my father's business. Friendships also carried a sense of mutual obligation and responsibility. 
We do things for one another, one another out of love for one another. That's why Jesus says, you're my friend if you follow my commands. It's not a way of earning friendship. It's part of what it means to be part of a real friendship. We learn love by having real relationships on the ground. Relationships of friendship and not just duty or service. Relationships where we're known as who we are and not just who we're trying to be. Relationships that are messy. And that is so much easier to say than to live. In which we make mistakes, in which we disagree, and we commit to working it out anyway. And it's also through real relationships with real people that we learn the love for neighbor that spills out into the work of justice and reconciliation and service and evangelism. This is one of our prayers, right, as we're learning how to dwell in Highwood. Not just that we would help people, but that we would form friendships and relationships, real relationships with real people. Friendships with those who are different than us or who are poor or marginalized or a different race or ethnicity than us can and should challenge our assumptions and reveal our blind spots. As we become friends with people, we start to care about the things that hurt them, the big picture things as well as the local things. As so many of those who work on the ground in areas related to justice and service recognize, holding together the personal and the structural is the most powerful combination. Real friendships are one of the ways that we learn that. So let's pray that the Lord will form both ministry opportunities and real friendships here in Highwood. We cannot practice loving one another from a distance. And we can't learn it from books. We learn love by doing, by showing up, by making mistakes, by giving and receiving grace. So as we wrestle with the doing part of learning to love one another, maybe we can start with this, these words of a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, rephrased a little bit. Give us grace, Lord when we hurt each other, to recognize and acknowledge our fault, and to seek each other's forgiveness and yours. Amen. We learn to love by dwelling and by doing. We also learn to, one, love, to love one another by learning the spiritual discipline of asking. I haven't read about that in a spiritual disciplines book, but stick with me. I started reflecting on asking as a spiritual posture or discipline this week while I was listening to a podcast. It was an interview with someone who works with what's being called the nuns and the duns, the people who are increasingly fed up with the church or who don't have any background with the church. And the podcast guest was telling a story about a young woman that he knew who'd grown up in a household in which uh, boundaries were non-existent. She was told what to do and when, given no freedom to make her own choices, and faith was one of those things about which she had no choice, nor freedom to find her way as she was growing up. So when she grew up, she wanted no part of it. After a long time of struggle and anger, she came across Jesus' words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And it hit her. Jesus has good boundaries. Jesus doesn't force himself into our lives or our inner rooms. He always asks, and the choice is truly ours to make whether or not we let him in. That realization freed her to receive Jesus back into her life. This spiritual posture of asking is one in which we too take that posture with one another. 
Because we all know what it feels like when someone thinks they can correct us about something that's none of their business. I have been on both ends of that, Let me, by the way. We all know what it feels like to be talked to instead of talked with. And there is so much of that happening right now. And as I said, I feel the temptation in myself. On a whim this week, I grabbed Dallas Willard's classic book, The Divine Conspiracy, off the shelf. And talk about a book that still speaks. He writes so eloquently about our temptation to try to fix those closest to us by telling them how they're wrong and trying to foist on them our wonderful solutions. He writes, At least we feel we need the choice of giving others a good dose of blame and condemnation when it seems appropriate, don't we? We have great confidence in the power of condemnation to straighten others out. And if that fails, should we not at least make clear that we're on the side of the right, no small matter itself? I think he just described Twitter 10 years before it was invented. Instead, Willard writes, the fundamental posture of the kingdom is to ask. He writes, as long as I'm condemning my friends or relatives or pushing my pearls on them, I'm their problem. They have to respond to me, and that usually leads to them judging me right back. But once I back away, maintaining a sensitive and non-manipulative presence, I'm no longer their problem. As I listen, they don't have to protect themselves from me, and they begin to open up. In the kingdom, our approach to influencing others for their good as well as ours will be simply to ask. To ask them to change and to help them in any way they ask of us. We ask and then we release. As therapist Nedra Tawab put it in her book on boundaries, I can hold hope for people to get better without forcing them to be well. Now, I do want to be very clear about something. I believe there are times in which we have to protect the vulnerable rather than the powerful. And I think if we're going to err on one side or the other, we should err on the side of protecting the vulnerable. That's really important right now. That being said, in the context of this community, not out there, not even on social media, but here at Redeemer, as well as with most of our friends and family, I think, the real relationships on the ground, I think Willard's words ring true. They certainly do for me. Our posture is to ask, to offer with open hands and then release, to be present, to allow people the freedom and dignity of their own walk with Jesus, even as we offer input when we are asked. And we ask the question, how can I participate in the work Jesus is already doing in this person's life? We ask, we release, we pray. Which brings us to the other part of asking, and you've already heard it. We learn to love by asking Jesus. We ask, knowing that Jesus doesn't live in a book, but he's here. He's right nearby. He's knocking. He's eager to enter and be with us as we figure this stuff out. As we learn how to love one another by dwelling and doing, we also learn by asking, confident in what Jesus tells us, that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. To return to my girls, they are both really, really great at demanding and ordering me around. Mommy, get my cars. Mommy, wipe my face. Mommy, come wipe me up. Too much information, sorry. Or there's questions stated as wants or tantrums, right? I want more toast. I want my vitamins. Orange and orange and red for Junie. I can't find Kristoff. 
louder than that, though. Sometimes, when there's yelling and demanding and jumping up and down, I just, I stop. And I kneel down. This is when I'm in good shape, right? I kneel down and I say, I'm right here. I'm listening. I'm ready to give you everything that you need. Now, God can handle our demands and our tantrums and our yelling (laughs) about what we want or need much better than I can with my girls. But Jesus is also right there next to us, listening, eager to hear about our needs and our wants. I'm ready. Just ask. We learn to love by dwelling in Jesus' love. We learn to love by doing love. And we learn to love by learning the posture of asking towards one another and toward Jesus. Jesus, I want to love this person. Help me. Jesus, I don't want to love this person. Help me. Jesus, I'm hurt. Jesus, I'm mad. Jesus, I just think they're wrong and that it matters. Help me. Over the course of the pandemic, one of the surprising things that's happened for me is a point of connection with um, a few folks on a text thread, people I've known a long time but haven't been very close to, and most of whom are not Christians. It's been very interesting. So this week we were texting about some of the hard conversations that we were having with people. One person mentioned that he'd spent time with his brothers, their polar opposites politically, They were just working on a home project, and it was the longest they'd hung out while being civil with each other. And he was glad for that, but also wondered if that meant he'd been a coward or was just avoiding confrontation. He was wondering. Another person mentioned he'd had a conversation with his siblings and his mom about vaccination that devolved into an hour-long shouting match on Zoom. And I texted, I was also wrestling with what it looks like to have strong opinions about what's right, but also value loving people where they're at. And a third person texted back, oof, this for the past year. How do I do that? As we learn how to do that together, to be that kind of community, people will notice. People will ask, how is this possible? And we will point them to Jesus. To Jesus in the book. To Jesus in our relationships with one another. To Jesus at our tables and at our table. Greater love is no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friends. And we will bear fruit that will last to the glory of God the Father. Amen.